0: Well, if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy, chapter 4. 1 Timothy, chapter 4. Uh, The title of this message is Spiritual Formation, the Journey to Christ-Likeness. Spiritual Formation, the Journey to Christ-Likeness. If the the bag's going down your aisle, you can keep your eyes open during this prayer, but otherwise, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we... uh, we give you praise, honor, uh, for your word. We thank you, Lord, and we ask that you would work in us through your word, that we would be conformed to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. What is spiritual formation? Well, let, me, let me approach that, answering that, by starting with some questions. How would you like to actually love your neighbor as yourself? How would, how would you like to not envy those who have significantly more than you? Like, so for instance, you're at the stoplight and the guy pulls up next to you in the car of your dreams that you're never going to have a chance to own, and you think to yourself, I want that. How would you like to not envy those who have more than you? How would you like to be free from loneliness? To no longer fear what others think of you or crave their praise and acceptance or approval? What about lust? How, how would you like to not only be free from the, the strong lust and, and deceptions, but even the free looks that are so available in this culture and that uh, desire to see? How would you like to walk through a shopping mall or a store and not have things catch your heart and draw you in? I've got to have that. I've got to have that. How, about, how, about, how would you like to not explode in anger the next time somebody says something to you or disagrees with you and you feel defensive or criticizes you? How would you like to have joy every time you're called on to lay down your life to serve somebody else or to pray for those who harm you rather than to curse them? We've spent eight weeks talking about the church and spiritual community and the series that we just finished. And next week we start a brief series, a two-week series in the uh, book of Jonah, and so I've got this week, and I, I wanted to, 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 to pause and, and, and talk about the individual for a moment. We've been talking about the church, let me talk about the individual for a moment. Now don't confuse that with me talking about individualistic Christian lives, um, that would be an oxymoron, but biblically speaking, spiritual formation into Christ's likeness, it, it cannot be, it cannot occur outside of Christian community. So though we've finished the series on the church, we haven't moved on. We're, we're now talking about you individually in the context of community. And and when I say spiritual formation, I, I, I use that term, and it might not be that familiar to you when we use the terms, or maybe we're familiar with something else. You might be more familiar with the idea of spiritual disciplines. You Maybe you've heard of spiritual disciplines. Uh, different traditions maybe use different terms. Uh, the, the term spiritual formation was maybe in our current era is popularized more by Dallas Willard, um, disciplines by others. But I like the term spiritual formation, or at least I use it uh, as often as not, um, because it focuses on the goal, whereas spiritual disciplines focuses on the activity itself. Um, And and there's a danger, I think, particularly given human nature, to focus on the activity, because We tend to want to focus on the activity. Am I doing enough? Am I doing all the right things? And that's not where we want our focus to be. Now, there are things we need to do, but what's the goal? What's the purpose of the doing? The purpose of the doing is spiritual formation. And when I say spiritual formation, particularly Christian spiritual formation, I'm talking about being conformed into the image of Christ. Being formed, if you will, into the image of Christ. Paul speaks of it in Galatians when he says, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Christ is formed in you. And then to the Colossians, Paul writes and says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's the the very goal of the Christian life, Christ in you. That's, That's God reforming us into his image from the fallen place that we have come. In his book, uh, Renovation of the Heart, Putting on the Character of Christ, Dallas Willard writes the following. Spiritual formation for the Christian basically refers to the spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of the human self in such a way that it becomes like the inner being of Christ himself. Spiritual formation is focused entirely on Jesus. Its goal is is an obedience or conformity to Christ that arises out of an inner transformation accomplished through purposive interaction with the grace of God in Christ. Obedience is an essential outcome of Christian spiritual formation. The focus in spiritual formation is on transforming your inner being so that it becomes like the inner being of Christ. I'm not talking about being deity. I'm talking about the nature of Christ, Christ being formed in us, being conformed to his image, as Paul puts it in other places. It, th- this is more than merely doing what Jesus did. Or, you know, it's a great question. What would Jesus do? That's a perfectly good question. It's one that we should ask. But this goes deeper than what would Jesus do. It's, it's what would Jesus be in this situation? So our doing needs to grow out of our being. Okay? And so we first need to focus on how, how do I become like Christ in my inner being. And then the life will flow from that, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit of Christ in us, the Spirit of the Son that is in us, crying out, Abba, Father, in the context of Galatians 4 and 5. This obedience that that we're to have, it arises out of an inner transformation that requires a Purpose of interaction, to use Willard's terminology, with the grace of Christ. and That simply means it is interacting with the grace of Christ with a goal, a purpose, in mind. That the fruit of the Spirit be formed in us, that Christ be formed in us. That's the purpose. There's plenty of teaching on how to interact with the grace of Christ in order to be a better you or to have a happier life. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what I think the New Testament turns our attention to, which is how to interact with the grace of Christ in order to be conformed into his image. It's a different purpose, if you will. So we're going to look at this today under three headings. Um, spiritual formation requires training. That's our first one. Spiritual formation is not optional. Second. And then finally, it's, which is largely application, spiritual formation in you, which we're going to answer the question, how do we train? How do we do this? If you would read with me in First Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 7 have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. That don't have anything to do with these myths and these fables. You know, there are plenty of people that want to talk to you about all sorts of things, and they've, they've got their, oh, have you heard about this? And they've, you know, whether it's a conspiracy, whether it's this, and the enemy's doing that. But, but Paul says, no, 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 turn your attention to this, train yourself to be godly. Be Christ-like. Yeah, that'll conquer a lot of things. There may be a lot of things the enemy's doing, but if we would be Christ-like, that will conquer a lot of things. Train yourself to be godly. What does this mean, train yourself? The Greek word translated train is the word that we get our word gymnasium from. A gymnasium was a place for training, if you will. It had to do with athletic training, this word. Training is hard and difficult work that strengthens someone for a future Performance. You know, we we go to work out at the gym, right? Why do we go there to work out for the performance itself or for the training? We go there for the training, right? That's not the competition. The competition happens at some future point. The gym is not the competition, it's where we undergo the training that prepares us for it. Godliness requires training. We, We don't want to confuse the actual training with the godliness. You know, we we've kind of have this idea that, you know, it's godly if I spend enough time praying and enough time reading the Bible. That's godliness. Well, kind of, but not really. That trains me so that I can actually love my neighbor as myself, that I can actually respond in a godly way, that I can actually pour out the love and the nature of Christ, pray for my enemies. See, that's the training. The godliness is the fruit that it bears, and so sometimes we get all condemned over, well, I'm not spending enough time doing this, as if there's some measurement that equals godly. No, the outcome is the godliness. It's these various things that we're going to talk about a little later that, that help us prepare and train for that godliness. There's another word that I think has been ruined in our day because of excesses, and it's the word aesthetic. You know, we think of the aesthetics in the history of the church and the people that had some pretty austere methods for um, uh, gaining... Uh, Holiness, as, as, as they thought of it. Um, but if you, and if you look up the word aesthetic in the English dictionary, it will convey something to the effect of practicing extreme self-denial or self-mortification, which means putting yourself to death um, in a spiritual way. And, and there, there's no doubt that historically it did become extreme. However, the word aesthetic comes um, from a Greek word that really had overlapping meaning, almost the same meaning as this word train. They're both athletic words. It meant to apply oneself with commitment to some activity, practice, or to engage in it. It's it's really the same kind of training that if somebody wants to be a gymnast or some other you know sport that they want to excel in, that they, the training that they go through in that. G.K. Chesterton wrote about how this idea of asceticism is in, uh, involved. Anytime that we love something enough that we think we'd lose anything to obtain it. You know, kind of like the idea that I'll crawl over glass for a mile, broken glass on my knees in order to to win that woman or whatever it is that that, that the goal is. That's asceticism. It's this idea that I will sacrifice pleasure to gain my ultimate joy. Okay? And and, and that's what it's about. So this idea of asceticism really involves joy if we think of it in the right sense. An athlete is willing to wake up at O Dark Thirty, do many... uh, things that aren't pleasurable and forsake some pleasures uh, and experience pain for the joy of what? For the joy of winning. A scientist may be willing to spend unthinkable hours in his lab in order to find a cure for a will, uh, an illness or a disease. And why? Because he knows that will bring him joy and others joy. A businessman will give up family relationships, time, and hours of sleep in order to gain position or money or power. Conceptually, asceticism is in each of those. Some positive, some negative, but the idea is involved in any of those. At its root, this training, this ascetic pursuit is rooted in joy, not misery. The joy of obtaining the desired end, the desired object. Adapting an illustration which Chesterton went on to give... Let me say it this way. Imagine that in 100 years, society from, from now, that society not only loses its um, overvaluing of sports and athletics, but it actually begins to hold sports in contempt. Just imagine that possibility with me. And people then would look back on what they might call the dark ages of parenting that happened at the turn of the millennium, the twenty beginning of the 21st century, when parents deprived their children of books and digital entertainment and subjected them to torture, having to run uh, run up and down a field, getting kicked in the shins, and, and risking head injury in order to play soccer. <laughs> well, we think that's absurd that they would think that way, right? Because we value sports and the health that it might bring and the competition is good. But if they don't value that, they would actually look at the practices that get you there as something really awful. And I think the enemy has used that kind of thinking to bamboozle the church into when we look at spiritual formation and the practices that we might call spiritual disciplines as really hard things because we've got our values in the wrong place. If we have our value on Christ and being like Christ, these things suddenly become more inviting to us. Amen? Train yourself to be what? To be godly. What, what is this godliness? Godliness, by the way, is not legalism, and we need to be clear on that. Godliness is, in fact, uh, in New Testament terms, the opposite of legalism. A godly life is a life lived in reverence to God. It's a God-oriented life, or to use John Piper's terminology, it's a God-word life. Godliness is this attitude of life that recognizes God's claim to our lives in thought, word, and deed. It's a reverence that includes worship and obedience. It's, It's the word used to describe Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and 11. You may remember Cornelius, the Gentile converts there when Peter shows up and things change and radically change for the future of the church. Well, Cornelius was a righteous or devout or godly, same word as here. And then it's coupled synonymously with another term, God-fearing. It's not two different things about him. It's like overlapping terms that are used to describe him. And it was the Gentiles who became believers, who lived godly and God-fearing lives that were not required to come under the law, the legalism of circumcision, celebrating certain days, eating kosher foods, and so forth. The, the whole issue in Galatians was, was over whether these God-fearing, godly people had to come under the legalistic notion of these Jewish traditions. We talked a little bit more about that last week. And so, godliness was what those who didn't get legalistic became. They became godly. They, they, they lived lives in, in obedience to Christ, but not necessarily in obedience to the Jewish law. And, and so... That, that's where that distinction would come in. So legalism has to do with being conformed to Jewish law culture. Godliness has to do with being conformed to Jesus. Legalism, to say it another way, it has to do with being conformed to Jewish law or some other law culture. Now, for instance, in the church today, you might find people saying that, well, you know, if you're going to be godly, you can't wear makeup, you can't cut your hair, you can't listen to certain kind of music. There's, you know, they give you a whole list of things you can't do. And culturally, that defines righteousness for them. But that's, that's a culture in and of itself. Godliness has to be to do with being conformed to the law of Christ. We're always called to be conformed to the law of Christ. That doesn't change. Amen? So before we go on and talk about how we train and, and, and do that, I want to take a moment and recognize that it is not an optional version of the Christian life that I'm talking about. This Train yourself for godliness is not like, well, if you really want to be a good Christian, you do that. But the rest of us, we're not going to do that because that's not all that important for us. No, it's, it's not optional. It's not an optional version of the Christian life. So spiritual formation requires training, yes, and spiritual formation is not optional. It's not optional. And for this, turn with me to Matthew 28, and we're going to read verses 18 through 20. You may recognize those verses because they're also known as the what? The Great Commission. A great Commission. So you, you may have heard these verses. If not, you'll probably hear them many times in the future if you're a new believer and you've, that, that's new to me. Well, praise God. I'm glad you're here. And these are important verses. Christians will talk about these a lot. But as much as we talk about them, I find it interesting that oftentimes there are things in here that would utterly shock most Christians, even though we can mostly quote these verses. Read with me in Matthew 28:18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Imagine driving by a church, and the signboard at the front of the church read, Teaching people to obey everything Jesus commanded. What would you think? Maybe you're new in a city and you're looking for a church and you see teaching people to obey everything Jesus commanded. Would you think to yourself, some, some might think, well, that's legalistic. Or would, might you think, that's impossible. Are they crazy? But maybe what we ought to think is, that's exactly what the church is supposed to do. Because that is the Great Commission. That is the Great Commission. And if we want to know what Jesus meant when he said, teaching them to obey everything I commanded in the context of Matthew's gospel, if we just look back at Matthew, what is it? Well, you're going to find that the vast majority of what he taught them was Matthew 5 through 7. Okay? And so the church has been given the commission to teach us to obey the teaching of Jesus. That's disciple-making. Disciple-making evidently consists primarily of two things. Now, obviously, there are a lot of things we could put under these, but primarily of two things, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and secondly, teaching them a lot of good doctrine. Wait, no, that's not what it said, is it? It didn't say teaching them a lot of good doctrine. What did it say? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you now. Truth be told, I love good doctrine. I love teaching doctrine. I love, I enjoy doctrine. But actually, I think sometimes we've substituted the teaching of good doctrine for the teaching of people how to obey Jesus. And we need to obey Jesus. That's an important part, that here's what he said to do, and here's what we should live. You probably won't get as many people to sign up for that as you would, say, a a class on uh, eschatology. I love teaching eschatology. Might have a class on that sometime soon you get more people to sign up for that if we said, oh, here, we're going to have a class teaching you how to do everything Jesus told you to do. You have three sign up, and two of them don't show. The other one's the teacher, you know. <laughs> so <clears throat> Discipleship involves teaching them to obey everything we've commanded to, to. Teaching people to be conformed to the image of Jesus by increasing obedience to his teaching. The word obedience scares some people. I mean, honestly, it kind of scares me. I I don't like limiting my choices. And when the minute I commit to obey something, I have now limited my choices. Okay? I've now said, by saying, I'm going to obey this, I've also said I'm not doing this, 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 or this. Because to obey this, I can't do those. Now, we like to think in terms of, well... I I want to be led by the Spirit, and what that means to us is, which I don't think is what the Bible means, but what that means to us is something along the order of, well, unless I feel convicted, I'm not going to do such and such. So let me translate that. I'm not going to obey Jesus unless I feel like it's a bad thing to do. Never mind that he said it was something I shouldn't do. That doesn't really matter. But I'm not going to obey him. Unless I feel convicted, we think that's being led by the Spirit. We could be very well being led by the flesh, especially if we have a seared conscience. that won't allow us to feel convicted about something that we ought to very well feel convicted about. We, we, We resist obedience. I mean, I like choices. I go to a restaurant, and there's only like one choice on the board. Or they give me a menu, and you open it up, and there's one thing written. Roast beef and mashed potatoes. I'm like, I'm going to a different restaurant. Right? I like choices. Way too much, to be honest with you, but that's another story. I do. But when it comes to the teaching of Jesus, it's not choices. It's here's what he says to do. Pray for those who persecute you. So you don't have the choice between pray for them, think ill will about them, uh, curse them a few times. Uh, you know. No, pray for them. Take up your cross. Follow me. These are things he's called us to. Obedience is being a sensible person. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching us how to live our lives, Matthew 7, 24 and 27, this is how it ends. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, which words? The ones in the Sermon on the Mount, and puts them into practice, or literally does them, is like a wise man, or like a sensible person, who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now notice, both people in this parable endure the same storm, yet the outcomes are entirely different. Why? One thing. Putting Jesus' words into practice versus not putting them into practice. Doing them. I think at times the church has done a huge disservice to believers by being so afraid that someone might obey Jesus thinking that it will merit them salvation. And that does happen. We do need to bring adjustment to that carefully. But we're so afraid that they might obey Jesus, thinking wrongly about their justification, that we've never bothered to tell them that obeying Jesus is actually an important thing to do. And I want you to notice that there's nothing in this parable about the motive for doing what Jesus said. He doesn't say those who do what he says but have all the right motives. Their house, Jesus, they hear and they do. Just simple as that. He just—it's it's real simple. Straightforward. And if they hear and don't do, well, that's the other case. And there's not a third category. This third person who didn't do it because they didn't want to be legalistic, and therefore their house didn't fall. I mean, they heard Jesus' teaching, but they said, no, I'm not really going to do that because I don't want to dare be legalistic. And Jesus says, you know what? Their house stands because, you know, their motives were so good. No. Formation is discipleship. Jesus did not create two classes of Christians, one that has spiritual formation, one that doesn't, one that's like Christ, and one that doesn't really care to obey what he says. No, there are not two classes. All who are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of them are to be taught to obey everything Jesus taught according to the Great Commission, not just certain ones of them. So spiritual formation requires training, and it is not optional. But how? How do we engage in this process? Certainly there are aspects of it which... The, in which the Lord engages us only, and we can't really engage. And we can't plan them. But when Paul says, train yourself to be godly, it, it suggests there are things that we can do and must do, amen, to train ourselves to be godly. So, yeah, God works everything together for my good, and that's part of my being formed into the image of Christ. And I don't have a lot of control over that at all, right, or none. But there are things I do have control over that he's saying, train yourself to be godly. Spiritual formation in you. So how do we train? Now, let me start by saying that there is not a complete list. I mean, notice that Paul doesn't even offer you a list of how to do it right here in the letter to Timothy. He doesn't tell you, okay, here's how you train. He, obviously, in context, they, there were ways they knew, the ways they understood by the way they operated as believers and, and, and that the people understood. And we can, we can study the New Testament. We can study the Bible. We can learn from it. We can study church history and see how have people train themselves to be godly and learn different ways. But there's not a complete list somewhere. Uh, And not all of these are for everyone. Some are going to be more helpful for some and others helpful for others. Um, But we should learn about them. Uh, And with the help of others, discern where our greatest need for training is. A number of good resources. I'm going to just mention three briefly. Um, One, um, and I just mention these because uh, sometimes you want to study further and say, okay, this is important. I want to look at this. Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, probably the most well-known book on, this, on the topic. Uh, it's got its strengths and weaknesses like any of these books I'm going to mention. So uh, you, you read these things and you study and you learn from them. Don't think that they've got it all figured out. None of us do. But it's, it's a classic on the subject. He talks about the—he breaks it down this way, the inward disciplines, the outward disciplines, and corporate disciplines. And, and so, for instance, inward disciplines, meditation, prayer, fasting, study— outward discipline, simplicity, solitude, submission, service, corporate disciplines, confession, worship, guidance, celebration. Uh, another resource, you've probably heard of Gary Thomas as the author of Sacred Marriage. It's a really good book on marriage. Highly recommend it. My, my favorite. Uh, but he's got a book called Sacred Pathways with the idea of pathways to Christ likeness, pathways to transformation. And uh, Just an idea, three of those, loving God through ritual and symbol, loving God through solitude and simplicity, loving God with the mind. Um, So that gives you some idea there of of that one. And then Renovation of the Heart, I've quoted from earlier by Dallas Willard. He has about four or five books on the topic that are out, but uh, that one's uh, specific where he talks about spiritual formation in the thought life, spiritual formation in our feelings, transforming the will and character, transforming the body, transforming our social dimension. He, He focuses on the outcome as more than he does the practice, but he talks about the practices that get you there. And some of the others talk more about the practice, but they also talk about the outcome. So they're they're all aiming in the same direction. But here are some means of spiritual formation that I want to address here this morning briefly. First, gathering in community, coming together as the people of God. This is one for every Christian. Except for those that are in prison for their faith, for instance, where they can't gather with the community. But they long for it more than the rest of us do. They long for it. Jeffrey Kelly, in the introduction to Bonhoeffer's life together, describes one of Bonhoeffer's key points this way. Christ existing as community challenges believers to behave as Christ to one another. This same Christ promises those who gather in his name to be present in, with, and for them. So When we we gather in community, there's this challenge to, to act as, to behave as Christ to one another. It creates that opportunity to bear with and to forgive and so forth. Bonhoeffer writes in that Life Together book, The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Of course, what is an inexpressible blessing... From God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trampled underfoot by those who receive the gift every day. In other words, you know, sometimes we get so much community and we forget what a blessing it is. We, we, we begin to think that's not a big deal. Who cares? And then we neglect it. We don't want to do that. We want to recognize the gift of God. Okay, so there's a, a place for recognizing that. It, it's easily forgotten, he goes on to say. That the community of Christians is a gift of grace from the kingdom of God. A gift that can be taken from us any day. That the time still separating us from the most profound loneliness may be brief indeed. And of course he himself experienced that when he was put in prison himself. And was separated from fellowship. And he knows that. By the spirit believers are to speak the word, the gospel to one another. Cleansing one another's feet through service and forgiveness. We talked about this a couple weeks ago from John chapter 13. We're to cleanse one another through service and forgiveness. Spurring one another on toward love and good good works. And remember Thomas in John chapter 20 from that same message where we looked at Thomas, who he had really little faith at all. He was hanging out on the fringes of Christendom. But but what did he do? The community was, he wasn't there when they showed up one week. His faith was weak. But he showed up the next time and all he had to do was show up. He, he didn't have faith. That was clear. Uh, he, he showed up. That's all he had, enough faith to show up. And yet the Lord transformed him through that. So the blessing of community was rich because Christ was in the midst of the, the gathered community. When Joseph and Mary could not find Jesus when returning home from Jerusalem, where did they finally find him? It says, After three days they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And then what did he tell his parents? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He recognized the importance of that. Another one I want to talk about, gathering in community, yes, but the second one, solitude. It's the other side of the spectrum. Solitude, being alone. It shuts off every, every other voice, every other noise, And at times, really, even our own voice and noise, we just remain quiet in order to hear from God. Now, we can't control whether or not we hear. We can control whether or not we listen, right? We spend time listening to the Lord and and quietening everything else down and listen. Now, you know, if we don't hear, that's fine. No no promise he's going (laughs) to open our hearts. But but when we listen, we're more likely to hear. If we don't listen, we aren't going to hear. Richard Foster says the following, he says, Our fear of being alone drives us to noise and crowds. We keep up a constant stream of words, even if they are inane. We buy radios that strap to our wrists. Now, this was written a few decades ago in the late 70s, I think. And so, you know, update it to whatever it is you you use now. But we buy radios that strap to our wrists and fit over our ears so that if no one else is around, at least we are not condemned to silence. But loneliness or clatter are not our only alternatives. We can cultivate an inner solitude and silence that sets us free from loneliness and fear. Loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. Of course, it comes because Christ is in us, right, as believers. So th- this n- we don't only have that choice of being alone. We, we can... Not be lonely when we're alone. We can actually have fulfillment because we, we draw into Christ, the truth of the gospel. It's healthy to set aside time, an hour, two hours, half a day, to be alone with the Lord. You don't have to have a huge plan. Really, a, uh, a Bible, a chair, um, maybe a couple of few books. Um, no phone, no distractions, no internet just separating off time by yourself. Uh, Bonhoeffer said the following, he said, whoever cannot be alone should beware of community. Whoever cannot stand, in, uh, stand being in community should beware of being alone. Now he may be stressing that strongly, but the point is this, if, if you're that person who you just can't stand being alone and you're constantly filling yourself with stuff, 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 meeting after meeting after meeting, you need to take some of those meetings off your calendar. And spend some time alone with you and the Lord. Now, if you're that person who loves to spend all your time alone, and you're thinking, yeah, I love the solitude thing, but you just don't really care about brothers and sisters in Christ and this whole community thing, you need to, to say, you know, that's not the one you need to be practicing. You need to practice community, okay? You need to focus in and take away some of that self-time because that can become selfish too, see? So both are, are necessary. When you learn the value of time alone without noise, you'll see why turning off everything, say, in your car when you're driving down the road can be a means of formation. I mean, just quiet, having some time to think about the things you were reading earlier and the things God is doing in your life. Maybe you'll be a little less apt to yell at the person in front of you when they do whatever they do that makes you yell, right? Um Jesus, Mark one thirty-five, very, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So, in solitude, prayer is part of it, but here you not only see prayer, but you see he went to a solitary place. Meditation. Now, there are two, this is the third one I want to speak about, meditation. There, there are two classic verses that speak about meditation. Joshua 1.8 and Psalm 1. Joshua 1.8 says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. And then Psalm 1 verses 1 through 3, blessed is the one who does not walk in in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or... That in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on His law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prospers. Now, meditation is popular today in the world, but it's not Christian meditation that's popular. And Christian meditation is really different than what the world calls meditation. Worldly meditation is about emptying our minds of everything. Christian meditation is about filling our minds with the truth about Christ and the truth of God, and the scriptures. Christian meditation has a goal. Notice in Joshua 1.8, it says, so that you may be careful to do it. So, I meditate on it so that I might be careful to do it. Meditation is what I like to think of as, as the simulator for Christ-likeness. You know what simulator is that pilots use to, to fly a plane? They learn how to do it in the simulator so they don't kill themselves the first time up and so on, right? So they, they get in there and they practice and it throws these various obstacles against them and circumstances and situations and the engine goes out and this happens and that happens and they have to react to it so that when the real situation comes, they know how to react. Well, I think meditation is a great place to take the scriptures and what Christ teaches us to do and prayerfully ponder, okay, when such and such happens to me, and you think about the last time you failed miserably, and such and such happens, how do I respond to that in a Christ-like way? And you walk through it in the simulator of prayer and meditation so that when it actually occurs, it's like, oh, I've been here before. I, I got this. And so you spend time contemplating what does it look like to live this out? Amen. What occupies our mind has significant impact in governing our behavior. Contemplating what, what God has done for us in meditation increases our love for God. It's all benefits of meditation. And then prayer, the fourth thing here. Um, prayer integrates well with meditation and solitude. It, it also brings us into God's Word, for we should pray with our Bibles open and, and, and use scriptural prayers that will benefit us. There are many there. Prayer can be laments can be asking the Lord to transform us so that Christ is formed in us. Jesus taught us to pray for one another's needs. Lord, give us this day our daily bread, not just mine, but our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. So we're praying for one another to be forgiven. Lead us not into temptation, which includes not only me, but my brother who's been struggling with sin or my sister who's been struggling. We pray for one another. Pray for receiving justice from the place of oppression. Um. Prayer is one of the hardest disciplines because it feels like we are accomplishing nothing. I mean, at least that's how it feels for me. I mean, I'm in a room. I'm by myself. Or maybe I'm with others. But we're talking to God who we can't see. And at the end of it, it's like, well, I didn't do anything to help it. But we did. We called on God. It's, the, it's a great demonstration that where we are weak, He is strong. Amen. It's important you say oh you got to put legs to your prayer. Well, you say yeah, sometimes yeah, but not always. I mean, you know, those those imprecatory psalms, you know, Lord smite my enemies. Don't put legs to those, okay? No. Um, yeah, those we, we can think things like that and we can entrust God to deal with vengeance and we don't take it on ourselves. Amen. And so we give it to him. We don't we, but we call on him, but we don't hit our enemy. We don't. So, it feels like we may be doing nothing, but it's having an impact. Jesus said we need to pray so that we will not come into temptation in Matthew 26, 41. So prayer has a significant effect on the temptation that we'll face and then how how we will face those temptations. Study. You know, if we don't study the Word, and I mean dedicated study to passages of Scripture, either reading longer portions or studying a particular book, if we don't study, our meditation can get off base because it's not informed by the context and a variety of things like that. So study is an important discipline. Fasting. You know, today people think that they should have everything they desire. So fasting isn't really something that's very attractive, but but we need to we need to fast. Richard Foster said this. He said, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. Are so you you're not kidding me? This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Fasting trains us how to say no to our fleshly desires. Now, if I can learn through fasting how to say no to legitimate fleshly desires then I can also learn and and be strengthened in saying no to the illegitimate fleshly desires. So there's value in it. Now, be careful not to think that somehow fasting will cure all your spiritual ills. It will not. It It won't cure everything and it won't have God eating out of your hands when you come to ask Him for something all of a sudden. Oh yeah, because you've been fasting you're getting every answer to prayer. No. I mean, He'll answer your prayers because you pray in Christ's name, but fasting is not a magic wand over your prayer life. Amen? But it is a valuable discipline. Um, One that I haven't practiced nearly as much as I ought. Um, But it it is a valuable discipline. Um, In closing, I just want to make a few comments. We could go on. There are so many others. I don't have time to cover them all. I've hardly touched on these uh, that I even have covered. Um, but let me offer a few other thoughts that I think will help you along the way. You know, in the fitness world, many people have learned that having a trainer can be beneficial to their, their, their development. Um, it's been said that a doctor who has himself as a patient has a fool for a doctor. Um, likewise, I think we need to also invite others into our lives to help us see what we need and uh, evaluate it. some spiritual friends, some spiritual direction. Uh, and you can find those in the church. You find them in community group. Uh, You'll have some that stay with you a lifetime, just your whole life. They become part of, you know, who you are, and and you may move, whatever, but you you stay with them. And they can, because they know you well, they can give you insight. But be intentional in finding spiritual friends and people that can give you spiritual direction. Be intentional in that. That's part of community. Uh, Don't be surprised if your practice of the disciplines comes in fits and spurts. You know what I mean by fits and spurts? Like, oh, I was doing so good, now I'm doing so lousy, and then I'm trying again, and then I did okay, and then I'm doing lousy, and now I'm doing better. That's okay. Because, first of all, it's, it's not a magical formula. It's not as if, well, if I just do all of this, then suddenly I'm like Christ. It doesn't work that way. It, it, it doesn't. Um, even if you were the most disciplined of people, practicing the means of formation doesn't work like a formula. These things that we're talking about have to interact with what God is doing in our lives, with our physical maturation, with our experiences, with opportunities to serve others, with opportunities to forgive others, with opportunities to bear with others, and to realize that when we're weak that God is strong. So it's not as if you can go out, I'm going I'm to do all of these this week, and I'm going to become like Christ. Yeah, well, you'll probably be miserable by the end of the week. Um, and, and, and so just be aware of that discipleship, and hence being conformed to Christ's image, is a lifelong pursuit. There's not an instant version of growing into the image of Christ. Notice I have not addressed questions like, uh, how, how long do I need to pray? Or how many chapters of the Bible should I read when I sit down? Or how much time do I need to spend doing these things? We are way too prone to focus on the time spent and think that that will somehow accomplish the goal as if, well, I'm at 58 minutes, I've got two more to go, and man, I'm really feeling hard. But I'll, I'll achieve Christ-likeness if I wait those two minutes. Make sure I get it done. No! It's not about that. Now, it's true enough that if you spend no time, it's not going to benefit you. But don't focus on the wrong thing. We've got to focus on the goal. Amen? But these things that I've talked about and the ones that I haven't talked about, these are how we can grow to actually love our neighbor as ourselves, or to not envy those who have significantly more than us, to, to be free from loneliness or no longer fear what people think of us or covet their approval, to stop exploding in anger, to have joy every time we're asked to lay down our lives to serve somebody else's agenda and not our own, to pray for those who harm us. These are the things that help us grow in that direction, to, to actually obey what Jesus taught. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, work in our souls so that we, we desire to be like Christ. We long and yearn to be like Christ. And Lord, help us to see clearly which areas of our lives we need to work on and things we need to practice to help conform us to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.